Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large. And I think you'll see today that uh, what you're going to talk, we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans, but it does have implications for how that came about. Our complete card emission statement, which we've worked on, is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. We try to minimize complex organizational structures, and hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merle Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler from the University of Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. One of the special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago. And I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes, and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups, and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response. And we'll end with some uh, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. Our next speaker is Michael Bumshard, also from the University of Washington, Seattle. Michael is part of the team who just published the first genome of an entire human family, two parents and two kids. That was published this week in Science. Um, I'm going to step back, actually, and talk about an issue that uh, I've been interested in for more than 25 years now. In fact, I, I remember the day as a medical student when I became interested in this topic because it was a, a, a fellow medical student who was presenting a case on rounds who described an African-American woman with albinism as a black albino. 
And um, I, I was perplexed by that statement. I, I didn't understand what that meant. And I mean, here was my colleague attempting to make an inference about ancestry based upon a simple um, or a complex straight skin color. And it, it really got me thinking about what that inference meant and how accurate was that inference. And to be honest, that's what uh, it, uh, it opened my eyes to the field of population genetics. And 25 years later, here I am. Now, we didn't start really writing about the topic of, of race ge and genetics and ancestry until much later, probably only eight to 10 years ago. And part of the reason that we waited so long um, was that we wanted to have an overwhelming amount of data to support our position. And one of the reasons we were interested in that is because this is obviously an extraordinarily controversial topic for many reasons. And therefore, you know, I, I'll tell you now that it deserves uh, a nuanced discussion, but in 15 to 20 minutes, we can't have that nuanced discussion. But I think it's worth having a discussion nonetheless. Um, it's something that has been implicit in terms of the talks that you've heard throughout the day, and so I think it's reasonable to spend 15 minutes having an explicit discussion about the relationship between uh, race, ancestry, and genomics. So. Um, Public perception is that, uh, well, I think the first thing we want to do is ask the question, why is this important? So public perception is that we need to understand this relationship to, to better understand um, human evolutionary and demographic history. That is human migrations, um, types of uh, the, the, the different evolutionary forces that have affected human populations. And I think it's evident from, again, the, the talks that you've heard this morning. In fact, I feel like part of my work has already been, has been accomplished based upon the talks that you heard today because not once, with the exception of Carlos making one quick comment about race, have you heard race used in a discussion about human demographic history or human evolutionary history? And indeed, aside from the explicit discussions that we've had and written about, um, we've never used the idea of race in any of our work in population genetics or evolutionary genetics. So again, even though that this is a public perception, and even, even among our scientific colleagues, that this is a concept that's important to us to do our work, I think it's simply not true. Nevertheless, race is commonly considered a determinant of health. Uh, in fact, you can't pick up a medical journal without reading about the differences between blacks and whites, different differences in rates of disease, prevalence of disease, risk of disease. And the question is, what are physicians doing? What's the biomedical community doing when they make uh, an infer when they use the word or use race? And often I think what they're really talking about here is ancestry, not race. Similarly, there's been a tremendous amount of interest as of late, i.e. the last five years, in the relationship between ancestry and race because of the, the proliferation of direct-to-consumer ancestry testing companies. There are now more than 40 companies worldwide to which you, you can send in a, a cheek swab. They'll take that DNA and either look at lineages from the Y chromosome or mitochondrial DNA or use autosomal markers to look at uh, several hundred markers and make an inference about what percentage of ancestry you have from Asians, what percent of your, your ancestry you have from Africans. And this raises a number of questions about validity and accuracy, as well as how to interpret that information. So it's really these, the, these last two. The race is commonly, used, or commonly considered a de determinant of health. 
and the int- increased interest in public interest in personal ancestry and genealogical research that's really reinvigorated what has clearly been a long-standing debate about the role of race and biology. And I use this slide for two reasons. One is that in the past 10 years, you've seen a lot of uh, discussion, and discussion that has often been polarized with, with some scientists claiming that um, there is no biological basis of race, and other scientists claiming that races represent discrete biological entities. Um, neither of which is true. The other reason I use this slide is to, because many people have argued that we've really learned nothing over the last 10 or 15 years to resolve um, this question. And I think that's absolutely not true. And in fact, if you are awake during these wonderful talks this morning, you, you, you heard firsthand that with all the technologies that are available for us to interrogate variation in the human genome, we've learned a tremendous amount about how genetic variation relates to racial categories. And in fact, I think that this has enabled us to to actually put this question to rest. If not now, it it soon will be. So what are the questions that um, I want to address very quickly today? One, what is the difference between race and genetic ancestry? Two, how well do traditional notions of race and um, and geography correspond to genetic inferences of ancestry? And three, is genetic ancestry rather than race a better predictor of disease risk? And I'm not going to answer any of these unequivocally, but, I, but again, it's, it's, a, it's a point to begin the discussion. So what is race? Well, my social scientist colleagues tell me that every one of us has a different perception of what is race. It's based upon our personal experiences and our socialization. So what I think about race as I'm walking down the street is probably different than what the person next to me thinks about race. Race also has social, political, and economic identities. And these, these identities are confounded with any of the biological information captured by race. In fact, this is one of the concerns, is that by exploring what biological information is captured by race, that the stereotypes associated with these identities will be reinforced. And that's certainly a, a legitimate concern. But there's a flip side, and that is that by understanding this relationship, we have a, the ability to do a great deal of good, particularly in, in, with respect to identifying genetic variants associated with disease and developing better and more targeted therapeutics. The other thing that's important to understand about race is its relationship to biology is complex. That is that there are a number of, of different morphological characters that have been used to make inferences of race. These characteristics are measured in many different ways. And as a consequence, while many of us think about the races in terms of there being a single traditional way to define race, there are literally dozens of different racial classifications, and this, this is one of the reasons. The other thing is that historically race has been a population concept. It was never a concept that was developed to take an individual and assign he or she to a particular race. So what that means is that the relationships among populations defined by race has always been subjective, and they're even, to some extent, more subjective when we try to look at individuals. So in contrast to race, and genetic ancestry is quite different, as you've heard today. Um, as, a, as a geneticist, I think of genetic ancestry, even though there are, is more than one definition, people talk about continental ancestry, for example, and you'll hear geographic ancestry. But as a geneticist, I think about ancestry representing ob- objective 
genetic relationships between individuals and populations. And in this pedigree, it's simply, what I'm simply trying to illustrate is that how an individual self-identifies themselves with a particular racial group may be only tangentially be related to their underlying genetic ancestry. I'll show you an example of that. But even with genetic ancestry, we're making subjective decisions that influence our perception of its relationship to race. So ancestry, genetic ancestry, is probably most intuitive when we think about it, the fact that we, we each have a set of parents and a set of grandparents, or when we think about the fact that we all have a common origin in Africa. But as you've heard today, our genome represents a, a mosaic of the contributions of many of our ancestors, and each of these different regions of the genome has essentially a different history. So if we go back in history just one generation, we might have parents that come from two different parts of the world, and we can look at their genome and make inferences about where those different parts of the genome came from. If we go a little further back, it might be that we have now ancestors from more than two parts of the world, and our, our genome becomes a little bit more complicated in terms of making inferences of ancestry. And if we go so farther back, so on and so forth, again, the genome continues to get more complicated in the sense that it increasingly is mosaic for individuals that might have had origins in different parts of the world. And so when we make decisions about the type of markers that we use, for example, to make inferences about genetic ancestry, we're, we're actually making a decision where in our history, we're choosing to sample this, this population history. And most of the discussion today has been focused on relatively recent uh, human history. So the first point I want to make is that race and genetic ancestry capture different sorts of information and, not inter and are not in interchangeable. And I think that's an important point to make. So the second question, how well do traditional notions of race and ge geography correspond to genetic inferences of ancestry? Well, our, our, our popular belief about race um, originates from the observation that people who live on different continents have different morphological characteristics, skin color, eye color, shape of the face, shape of the nose. And we know that individuals who, um, if we look at comparisons of indivi multiple individuals who live in these different regions, they're often more similar to one another than they are to people living in two different regions. And that re represents this this spatial structuring of human morphological variation. And, it, and we've gone over this in detail today, or I think a lot of the talks assumed that we had an operational knowledge of how this morphological variation and the genetic variation that underlies it came about. But just to be explicit, um, I, I just want to show you a couple examples of how this variation came to be distributed. Well, as you've heard, anatomically modern humans originated in East Africa, say, 100,000 years ago, and it's with an effective population size in the neighborhood of 10,000 individuals. And as anatomically modern humans migrated out of Africa, occasionally they took with them variation that was just a subset of the variation found in Africa. They had to, by definition. But occasionally, the variation that went to one part of the world was completely different than the variation that went to another part of the world. Similarly, at other loci, you had variants that might have existed at one particular frequency in African populations, but now as a result of either genetic drift or selection, exist at very different frequencies and populations in different parts of the world. So over time, you have the sorting of variants, of different variants, and variants at different frequencies in populations that are geographically dispersed from one another. 
So overall, how much do we really differ from one another? Well, obviously, models I got twins don't differ at all from one another. You've heard today that if you look at any two unrelated humans, that they differ about one in every thousand base pairs. And I think an interesting way to think about this is that if you turn to the person next to you and you both start reading the same part of the genetic code, you're going to re be repeating the same letters to one another uh, with the, uh, for about 17 minutes. So it's about every 17 minutes you're going to hit upon a letter where, bo where both of you are going to have to say something different. And then as we've learned, humans differ from chimpanzees at about one in every 100 nucleotide sites. So the take-home message here is that we're really we're quite similar to one another overall. But as a result of these differences, the way that they're spatially um, represented across the globe, we can use these differences to make inferences about ancestry. So the question is, how does that relate to inferences made about, based on race? So what, to some extent, you've seen earlier this morning, both talks from Sarah and Carlos, is what we were, were we learned how to do only in the last 10 years, which is we take a group of unrelated individuals from different parts of the world, we anonymize them, so we're not making any a priori decisions about where they came from in the world, and then use a set of genetic markers to make inferences about how those people and those populations are related to one another. So this is work that we did about eight years ago now, and this is at a time when this yet hadn't been done on a very large scale. And we were actually asking the question, how many markers does it take to, under ideal circumstances, meaning taking populations that are as geographically disparate from one another as, as they possibly can be, East, I'm sorry, East Asian, Sub-Saharan Africans, and Western Europeans, can we, in fact, distinguish these groups into the self-identified racial groups? And if you see here, so each circle represents an individual. The apex represents the three different populations. And I, can, I think you can see that they form fairly tight clusters. Yet, as Carlos again mentioned this morning, this clustering is really an artifact of the way that these populations were sampled. So we sampled from the extremes because we were skeptical that we could even do this with a, a relatively limited set of, of genetic markers. Now, you've heard that variation is clinically distributed, and that's largely true with some minor discontinuities. And as a result, when we start to look at human, popula human populations that are not as carefully selected to represent the extremes, we get a little different picture. So in this case, we're looking at African-Americans, Asian-Americans, European-Americans, African-Americans who have come from different parts of Africa, as well as, as, well as um, African-Americans who have been here for a period of time and have had the opportunity to add mix with uh, European Americans, as, as what you can see here is that when we try to make the same sort of inference, yeah, the, the, the cluster of African Americans isn't nearly as tight as the clusters of, of European and Asian Americans, and what this represents is admixture with other populations, largely European populations. So in this sense, the classification of race isn't really capturing the underlying differences in ancestry we see, for example, between this individual and this individual. Well, what's supposed to be here, <laughs> it's a deletion, is, is a triangle just like this, okay? But the difference is there's a bunch of yellow dots that represent individuals from South Asia. So we've worked for the last 10 years on the Indian subcontinent, um, asking questions about population origins and relationships between tribal and caste groups in India. And what you would see in that illustration is that these yellow dots extend from 
this apex to this apex. And what that means is that those individuals don't fit neatly into any of the self-identified racial categories that are commonly considered under common notions of race. So again, we have a billion people on the Indian subcontinent who we can't neatly classify into a, a racial category. In other words, race is complete, virtually meaningless with respect to um, at least one-fifth of the world's population. And this is a slide actually from work that uh, Carlos has done in part. And it shows the differences in, in genetic ancestry between different populations living in Europe. And what you can see is, even though all these, these under, individuals under a traditional racial classification would be considered as members of the same group, there's substantial fine-scale population structure among these different groups. So once again, race is failing to capture the, the information on genetic ancestry that exists in this population. And maybe this is epitomized with a story I think maybe many, some of you are familiar with. This is a gentleman by the name of, of, of Wayne Joseph, who um, is an educator outside of Los Angeles. And he's, he grew up as an African-American, and he's been on the talk show circuit for a number of years now because he actually went and had his ancestry testing done by one of these direct-to-consumer ancestry testing companies. And what he found is, despite the fact that he's grown up as an African-American and actually writes about the African-American experience, he was found to have 57% European, 39% Native American, 4% East Asian, and no African ancestry. So this is an example where absolutely that racial classification failed to um, correspond to any inference of genetic ancestry in this individual. So the second point that I want to make is that race reflects a very geographic ancestry of modern humans, but it fails to accurately reflect the distribution of human genetic variation. In other words, race does capture some information about ancestry in some circumstances, but it's not a very good proxy for ancestry. The last question is, genetic ancestry rather than race a better predictor of disease risk? And when we think about race as a physician, we fail to understand that race can vary with disease prevalence in many different ways. So it might vary with environmental risk factors, it might vary with genetic risk factors, or different combinations thereof. In fact, I think most of the time, race as it's used probably varies more strongly with environmental risk factors for disease. But we do clearly know that very clearly there are genetic risk factors that, that differ in frequency and different even in whether they exist or not between populations of different genetic ancestry. And this is just one example of those. It's, it's, a, it's actually an HLA allele, B1502, that's associated with something called Stevens-Johnson syndrome, a severe adverse drug reaction. But it's found in, it was found originally in people of Han Chinese origin. And now it's been looked at across Asians. And again, it's found, it's found, this association is found in Asians. It's not found in, in individuals who are of European or of African ancestry, with the exception of what was found in four Europeans who turned out to be predominantly of Asian ancestry. And I'm going to skip that one. And I use that because it's increasingly clear, and we've been a strong advocate of physicians, instead of using race to make decisions about um, healthcare and about the drugs that they use to use ancestry instead. But operationalizing this is quite challenging, and there are a number of ways to make ancestry inferences in the clinic, self-reported ancestry using geographical origin, although, again, as you've heard today, for many people, they don't know the geographical origin, and 
Oddly enough, if you, the studies have been done, and when they ask siblings about the geographical origin of their parents, they're only concordant with one another about 50% of the time. Um, similarly, one of the other issues is if we're going to start using ancestry information in a clinical setting, what's the impact of this inform- information? How will that change a patient's perception of, of themselves? How might that change their the behaviors that might Im- improve their health? Also, how, how might the perception of the care provider change if he or she is now aware of what is the genetic ancestry of the people that they're treating. So I'll leave you with this. The, the third point is when genetic factors are associated with risk of disease or treatment response, genetic ancestry appears to be a better predictor of risk than race. Thanks. My name is Ajit Varki, and as the co-director of UCSD Salk Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, the Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the executive director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Swante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. (laughs) So in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. Question number nine in the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, that's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala in the south coast of West India. So I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say human. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.